Let's open again to the book of Colossians as we continue to work through this marvelous letter from the Apostle Paul. Last Sunday, we began the practical section of the letter, moving from theology to practice, from our position in Christ to what that looks like in the practical experience of the Christian life in chapter 3 and verse 1. Today, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 5, but let's just go ahead and grab the whole context Starting verse 1, if then or since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Years ago, there was a television show that some of our family members enjoyed watching. It was called What Not to Wear. And maybe that stirs up some memories for some of you, but it consisted of two fashion experts and a team of hair and makeup advisors who were enlisted to help revamp the appearance of another person. Friends would uh, nominate the contestant for a complete makeover, and the chosen person had to accept the help that was being offered. Uh, They had to be willing to allow them to dispose of their existing wardrobe and then guide them on a $5,000 shopping spree for new clothes. And when the makeover was complete, In some cases, the new person was hardly recognizable compared to the original appearance. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit begins a makeover at the moment of our salvation. However, this makeover is not cosmetic. It does not begin or even remain on the outside, but on the inside, at the level of our heart's desires, and then it works outward From there, 
That's the apostle's point in the passage that we're looking at this morning, which gives us this big idea. At conversion, the Spirit began a new work in us to remake us into the image of Christ. This progressive sanctification, or we might refer to as holiness, requires continuous effort to put off sin and put on righteousness. So you'll notice that this is a new work begun by the Spirit. Conversion, when, when the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us, as Jesus describes in John 3, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Once we then come into a relationship with Christ, then begins a cooperative relationship of sanctification, whereby in the power of the Spirit, we must continually put off sin and put on righteousness. Homer Kent says it this way, Christianity is more than a creed, it is a life. It is not confined to hymns and prayers and creedal recitations, but involves the continual response of the believer to the new life which regeneration has created in him. So as we've said many, many times, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a living relationship with the living Savior. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 describes this process of becoming like Christ this way. We all, believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, that is progressively, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the agent of sanctification. As we learn to behold the glory of Christ, we then are transformed into his image. So clearly here, God's purpose for every believer is to be conformed into the likeness of Christ by beholding his image. We are then transformed. This is the key to spiritual growth. This is the key to making progress in Christ. So Paul is saying to us here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we focus on the character of Christ, we are progressively changed from one degree of glory to another into the same image that is the image of Christ. This is accomplished through the heart-transforming power of the gospel and our growth in submission to Scripture. The Holy Spirit then goes to work in performing this complete makeover. He empties our closet, disposes of the old ways and replaces them with a whole new wardrobe, which is the character of Christ. This process requires our full cooperation in two ongoing disciplines. Number one, put off the sinful ways of your old life when you are outside of Christ. So it begins by getting rid of the old clothes, trashing the old life, so to speak. All that was characteristic of our lives before 
we were saved. Notice verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Therefore is there for a reason, taking us back to the previous four verses, which we looked at last week, which is a call for us to live like we are alive in Christ. So Paul says, put to death, therefore, in other words, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, because you have been raised to new life in Jesus, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death can also be translated mortify. Kill it. And Paul describes three categories of desire to kill. Or categories of sin. First, kill your sinful desires. First he says we need to put to death or mortify our sinful desires. And he he lists five sinful desires that illustrate his point. Obviously, This list is not all-inclusive. There are many more sinful desires which Scripture would expose. But these are five that he concentrates his attention on. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why get rid of the earthly? Because we're supposed to be setting our minds on that which is above, not that which is on earth. First, sexual immorality. The word here covers a lot of bases. It's uh, root word is pornea, from which we get pornography. So this is a word that includes any solicit, excuse me, illicit sexual content, conduct, including fornication, adultery, and indulgence in pornography. And of course, the scripture uh, forbids many other uh, sexual abominations. But the point here is, Paul is saying that was a part of your old life. It ought not to be a part of your new life. Therefore, put it to death. When it creeps up again, put it to death. Kill it. Mortify it. Impurity is a word that kind of pairs up with the first term and means uncleanness. It's used in Romans 1.24 to refer to perversions such as homosexual relationships that are under the wrath of God. These two terms come together in forming how we ought to think biblically about sexuality. Then he says passion. These are strong erotic desires Put together again with the next word, evil desire, because the word passion itself is not always an evil word. It depends on the context that we find it in, in Scripture. We ought to have strong desires for that which is pleasing to God, but we need to put to death the desires for things that are not pleasing to Him. So, passion, strong, erotic desires, as well as evil desires desires in general. And then covetousness, verse 5, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This word is often translated greed. It means to wish for more. And it can refer to all kinds of materialistic desires. But in this context, again, it has sexual overtones. Uh, for example, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the word is used in relation to sexual coveting, which calls to mind the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This wish for more must be killed. It must be put to death. And Paul calls covetousness, notice in in verse 5, idolatry. Why does he do that? Well, he identifies covetousness as idolatry because such overpowering desire to possess what is not rightly ours relegates God to a second position. That's why he uses this strong language. And and upon these, or on account of these, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. This is a strong warning to us. He's, He's alerting us to the fact that, believers, listen to me. You used to be children of wrath. You used to be living under the wrath of God. That is not the case anymore for you. If you know Christ, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. Then why then would you choose to go back into lifestyles that are under the wrath of God? These are things you once walked in. Verse 7, he says, in these you too once walked. The word walked refers to habits of life, a pattern of life. Again, as I mentioned last week or previous weeks, when we're talking about progressive sanctification and growth and holiness, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about progression. Are we making progress in Christ? Are we moving in the right direction? We shall not be fully perfect until we see the Lord Jesus face to face and we are glorified. Until then, there will be this struggle with sin. But the question is, are we moving in the right direction? Are the patterns of our life changing? Sometimes ever so slowly and frustrating to us. But are they changing? Are they moving in the direction of Christ Christ? Likeness, Because Paul says, before you were saved, you were living that way. You were walking that way. You were living in them. Living in the sin. The believers, we're no longer in sin. We're in Christ. Though we still struggle with sin. You see the difference? Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, that was the course of your life. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying that is part of your past. You were children of wrath. This was your old life. Paul says, we should no longer walk in these ways. Instead, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And then he transitions to the second category of sin. Not only are we called to kill our sinful desires, But secondly, kill your harmful speech. Verse 8. All of these sins that 
are mentioned in verse 8 are connected to what comes out of our mouths. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put them all away. Anger and wrath. We'll talk about those together because they're connected. What Paul is dealing with here is not simply the outworking of anger and wrath, but the heart attitude, just like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. Anger and wrath are heart attitudes that lie behind sinful and harmful speech. Anger refers to outbursts of passion, which then can lead to wrath, which is more of a settled state of hostility, kind of a slow-burning anger. You know, not, not, the, not the volcanic kind of blow-up, but more of the low-simmer, kind of a slow-cooker, crock-pot anger. It's like always under the surface, this underlying hostility, which most often flows out of a heart of resentment and bitterness. James says this in his letter, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is a really significant statement. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but it is so rare for us (laughs) to then respond in a righteous way when we do have righteous anger. And so we are exhorted to put away anger and wrath, as well as malice, which is kind of a general term for badness. It can refer to ill will. Again, it's a heart. Is your heart filled with ill will towards someone? Do you wish bad upon them? Slander which is often translated blasphemy. It means to speak badly about God or man. This is harmful speech that is hurtful to others. And obscene talk. I hardly need to define that for you. You know what that is. This is speech that is dishonorable and disgraceful. It covers a wide variety of harmful words. It would include off-color jokes, innuendos, all those kinds of things that are so prevalent in our culture. In Ephesians 5, we are exhorted this way, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Words is not even to be a part of a Christian's life. Why? As is proper among saints, holy ones, those who have been called out by God, for God, to God. Part of the old man. Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Why are they out of place? Because they're not consistent with the new life that we are in Christ. So, put to death, kill harmful speech. Thirdly, another category of sin. Kill your deceit and live in the truth. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, 
That's a command. Do not lie to one another. Literally, do not keep on lying. Do not continue in patterns of deceit that were yours before you were redeemed. Why? Because they are contrary to the new self that God is creating in you through Christ, which is that we learn to walk in truth, not lies. And again, Paul is aiming here at both lip and life, not one or the other. In both lip and life, we must aim for truth to reign. Why? Verse 9, because you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. What is the reason? The reason is God began a good work in you, redeeming you from sin, recreating you in Christ Jesus, deceit, is not characteristic of Christ. Seeing your new identity. That's what he says. Seeing that you have put off the old self. We have to see our new identity in Christ, which is that we are dead to sin, we are alive to God, therefore deceit should no longer be a part of your life. Dishonesty in any form verbally or in action is something that Paul says we must put off because it doesn't fit with Christ who is truth. Harry Ironside says it this way. It is so natural to these vain hearts of ours to try to make things appear better than they really are, to cover up our failures and to accentuate the sins of others. Yet these are just different forms of lying. And we are called upon to judge all guile, untruthfulness of every character in the light of the cross of Christ. The old man was judged there in person of our substitute. His deeds are to be refused, the old man. His habits put off as discarded garments, which as we have seen are in no sense fitting for the new man. Our identity in Christ changes everything. That's what Paul is saying. This transaction or this this change has happened in the past. You, You have put off the old self. You have put on the new self. Verse 10. The moment of conversion... And yet at the same time, look at verse 10, there is a progressive action that's taking place now, which is being renewed. So the new self is being renewed according to the image of its creator. I love the way Robert Gramacki says it. He says, the old nature cannot be reformed, it must be replaced. It's really significant because if you think you can reform your old life, you're wrong. You can't. You don't have the power to do that. You don't have the ability to do that. And nor does God even want to reform your old life. He wants to replace your old life with something totally new, which is the new life in Christ. 
So in salvation and sanctification, God does not take the clothing of our old life to the alterations department and say, well, we we need to take in a little here. We need to let out a little seam there. No, he says, I'm going to trash your whole wardrobe and give you a new one in Christ. I want you to put away all of these characteristics of your old sinful life before you knew Christ and put on Christ. This is according to, he says, knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of Christ and according to his image. See, when we were created in the image of God, sin then distorted that image in salvation and redemption. What is God doing? He is restoring the image of God within us. How? By recreating us in the image of Christ. That's a beautiful thing that God has done for us, totally by his grace. So maybe you're wondering, well, how do I break these habitual patterns, like like deceit, if that was a part of, of your life, or some of these other sins that have been mentioned? How do I change? Well, you replace the old with the new. That's what we are being taught. We don't just get rid of the old, but we also have to put on the new. For example, uh, in Ephesians 4.25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of another. See, when we are deceitful, it not only harms us, but it harms the people around us and it harms the body of Christ. That's why he goes right into verse 11 talking about the church. Here there is, here, where? Here in the church, here among believers. What matters is union with Christ. That's what matters. Doesn't matter if you're Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, in all what? In all believers. Union with Christ is what matters. And so in Christ, all earthly distinctions of race and religious upbringing and position in society become irrelevant. I did not say non-existent. Those distinctions still remain. They exist. But in Christ, they become irrelevant because Christ is all and in all. This is one of the mysteries of God that Christ is in us as believers, the hope of glory, which, by the way, can be a really powerful incentive for us when we are struggling with sin, when we are facing the temptation. We need to remember, wait a second, Christ is in me. Do I want to take Christ into this sin with me? Do I want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives within me as I decide to do this sin? Whether it's a heart sin or a flesh sin? Powerful incentive. All of these cultural distinctions 
among believers become irrelevant to the unity and the fellowship that belong to all who are in Christ. So what's the point of verses 5 through 11? The point is this. In the words of the Puritan theologian, John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the choices. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So put off the old sinful ways. But secondly, we must put on the righteous ways of the new life, the new life which is now in Christ. This is verses 12 through 15. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen Ones. Why? Well, because he already said in verse 10 that we have already put on the new self. In Christ, we've already put on the new self. So now he's saying, put it on on a regular daily basis. Be putting it on. And Paul gets specific with four categories of newness of life. Number one, put on holy character traits. Verse 12, put on holy character traits. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and then he goes on. As God's chosen ones, we have an incomparable position before God in Christ. Believers were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What a gracious mystery for us to ponder. Equally mind-boggling is that we are beloved by God. Chosen, holy, and beloved. We are set apart by God, for God, to God, and we are loved with an everlasting love. That's God's attitude toward us in Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Believer, this is who you are. You are God's chosen one. You are holy and beloved by God. Because of that, put on these character traits. First, compassion. Compassionate hearts, it says in verse 12. Compassion is a heart of mercy that that comes from deep within. Uh, The King James uh, Version translates this as bowels of mercy. Uh, Why? Because in ancient times, the word bowels referred to the deepest inner part of man where the deepest emotions live. I'm grateful for updated Bible translations (laughs) that remain faithful to the author's original intent. You know, I love you with all my heart sounds way better than the alternative. 
the, the, it, we're talking about deep-seated mercy toward a person, especially sensitivity to those who are suffering. You know, over a decade ago, it was a gallon of milk that taught me the meaning of compassion. My wife had had major surgery, and the doctor uh, strictly forbid her from lifting anything over five pounds for a long time. And one day there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there was this single man from church standing there, and he was holding four half gallons of milk. And he said to me, Paul, one gallon of milk weighs 8.6 pounds. So I bought four half gallons so that Karen could carry them. That's compassion. That's sensitivity to someone who's suffering. That's what a compassionate heart does. That's what we are to model. He says, put on this character trait, compassionate hearts. Then kindness, which is sweetness of disposition and attitude toward others. You know people like this. They're just kind. They're kind. They're just sweet people. Sweet, spirited, tender They have a sweetness of disposition and their attitude toward other people. Humility, which is an accurate view of yourself. We've talked about this before. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to, but also not thinking of yourself lower than you ought to because of who you are in Christ. But thinking of yourself accurately according to the word of God. Meekness. Meekness is the opposite of harshness. Scripture speaks of Moses as being the meekest man on earth at the time. And Jesus even identified himself as being one who was meek and humble in heart. It's the opposite of harshness. That when you must speak truth, you're still speaking that truth with gentleness. Speaking truth in love, as Ephesians 4 says. And patience, which is long-suffering in the face of attack. It's the opposite of revenge. When you're mistreated, are you patient? These character traits are concerned with the needs of others, not yourself. They include a willingness to subordinate yourself to the good of others. And he says in verse 13, put on Christ-like patience and forgiveness, bearing with one another. That's forbearance. Love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, we put up with one another because of what Christ has done for us. This doesn't mean we excuse sin. It doesn't mean we don't confront each other when we need to confront each other. But it does mean that we do put up with each other in the sense that we don't nitpick and, and scrutinize and Uh, confront each other about every little thing that bothers us. It saves the confrontation for sins. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, if you've got a problem with another believer, what are you supposed to do? Forgive. Forgiving each other. That's what your heart posture is to be. Perhaps it needs more than that. Perhaps you need to go and talk to that brother or sister 
in Christ. But what kind of heart should you go to that brother with? Go to that sister with? A heart posture of forgiveness. And notice that the forgiveness that we are called upon to practice here in verse 13 is not optional. It's a command. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, must forgive. I've had Christians say to me, well, you know, you wouldn't forgive that person either if you knew what he or she really did or if if they did that to you, you, you wouldn't forgive them. I don't, I don't have to experience every hurt in this life to know what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. And if I have been forgiven by Jesus of more sins than I'm even aware of, how could I possibly withhold the grace of forgiveness from someone else? It's, it's unfathomable, Paul says. You must forgive. Sorry, I lost my place. This usually doesn't happen to me, but... Jesus' words in Matthew 6 are just really convicting. They ought to be very convicting to all of us who are disciples of Christ. He says, If you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their trespasses against you, neither will the Father forgive you. It's a shocking statement. And the reason Jesus uses such shocking words is he's trying to show us the absolute inconsistency of being a forgiven person who refuses to forgive. It makes no sense. And all of this then in verse 13 uh, is, is realistic. I mean, isn't it? I mean, we are still struggling with the old man, right? We're still struggling with sin. And so there, there's going to be conflicts among us. But how do we respond to them? We ought to live in harmony. As the saying goes, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) It, It takes work. It takes the work of biblical love and biblical forgiveness to live in harmony with one another. We have to be intentional. And then verse 14, put on biblical love. The command here is to put on the belt of love. And it's located here near the end of this list because um, it, it wraps it all together. Notice, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on, as we've been learning, can also mean clothe. Clothe yourself in love. So in place of our old attire of selfishness, we must put on the new wardrobe of Christ-likeness and tie it all together with biblical love. What is biblical love? Well, biblical love is defined by God who is love. 
The world has its own definition of love. And sadly, many Christians today want to redefine love. But what is love? Well, God is love, and therefore God is the only one who gets to define what love is, right? Truth defines love. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Biblical love does not rejoice over sin, but it rejoices with the truth. I find it interesting that there's only one other time in the New Testament that belt is used in a metaphorical way, and it's in Ephesians 6 in the armor of God where we are told to put on the belt of truth. See, the belt of truth and the belt of love work together. Truth and love are married in the Bible. They're not opposed to each other. Sometimes people say, well, do I tell you the loving thing or do I tell you the truthful thing? They're the same in Scripture. Truth defines love. We don't get to define love. God is the one. It defines love. And when we function in biblical love, what does that do? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Beautiful picture. And then finally, verse 15, put on Christ-like peace and gratitude. We're just going to touch on this verse. Uh, It's really transitional. It's hard to know if it should be a part of this sermon or if it should be a part of the next few verses. But let me just tie into it here because there is a, There's a body connection here that makes sense with what we've been looking at. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The word rule means umpire. Umpire. Peace is an umpire. You know, everyone loves the umpire who who calls the play in favor of their team, right? Right? And then, oh, and that umpire calls in favor of the other team. Oh, how upset we get. The peace of Christ is an umpire for our conflicts. So Paul isn't promoting peace at any price here, peace at the expense of truth. But what he is saying is, when we have our differences, what should our spirit and attitude be in our heart toward one another? should be peace and truth and love. It all works together. Truth forms the border of peace just like truth forms the border of love. I love how Psalm 34, 14 keeps these together when it says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Just like love and truth are not opposed to each other, peace and truth are not opposed to each other. One informs the other. And when the peace of Christ rules our hearts, what does Paul say will happen? We will be thankful. We will be thankful. A few weeks ago, a couple people came to me after this sermon and said they were feeling really, really convicted. And I said, well, just wait till we get to chapter 3. <laughs> Because in chapter 3, we all get busted. We all get busted in chapter 3. Not a single one of us escapes the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, None of us escape the warnings, the commands, the exhortations. 
none of us have escaped this morning. So I think it would be appropriate for us to just quiet our hearts and go before the Lord and let's have a, a moment of quiet confession of sin to the Lord. But also follow up your confession to the Lord with asking for his help in implementing the newness of life that you already are in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. It's like a sword, two-edged sword that does surgery on our hearts. It wounds and then it heals. It convicts us of our sin and then gives us such gracious promises that all of our sins have been paid for fully by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And though we still struggle with sin, even as believers, we know that you've given us the promise that if we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we are in Christ. God, help us to walk in the newness of life that you've already said we are, that we possess. May we submit to the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God so that we may see the kind of progress in our lives that we know you desire. We want to be more like Jesus, Lord. So do this work in us. And Father, Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not yet secure in Christ, oh, may you woo them with your love. May you draw them to yourself. May you show them what a loving God you are who accepts sinners who come to him through Jesus who is the one who paid for all of our sins. Do a mighty work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.